Mr. Mark Lugwig, welcome to Act Dad, the Awesome Dad Show. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on, Mark. I've been watching your story unfold here over the past few months, and I've got a lot of respect for your mission and your change. And I'd like to start here as the, the founder of Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. When did you start it and, and why? What triggered you to start this movement? Uh, yeah, I started getting active about, I guess, four or five years ago. Uh, at the time, I was still going through some medical challenges, but I, I'd had quite a background in the political arena in the past. I'd been a candidate for U.S. Congress against uh, you know, Dick Kephart, who was a pretty well-known. He was the House Majority Leader, so next to Clinton, he was the most powerful person in the country pretty much at the time. And uh, so I became very well-known politically. And uh, as my health started getting better, I just started realizing, okay, maybe instead of me being the politician, maybe I can use those connections to get legislation passed. And so I start out, uh, I did a monthly night, uh, Monday night series on uh, the Father's Rights Movement page for about a year every Monday night. Uh, main goal is trying to educate people. Uh, in the past, people thought the way to get uh, legislation passed was go protest at a courthouse. And I understand their frustrations. I totally understand where they're coming from, but they, they have a hard time understanding that's not gonna help get legislation passed. It's actually gonna work in reverse because it feeds into the narrative of the angry dad. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that's right or not. It's just the way it is. Well, more and, often, it's, it's more effective to shake hands rather than slap faces, right? Exactly. And, uh, you know, so I, the other thing is I spent about a, a good year and a half sort of getting a lay of the land because I, I really didn't want to start my own group because there were already plenty of other groups out there. It's just uh, I had a, a unique niche of focusing specifically on legislation. Uh, mm -hmm. Father's Rights Movement is a great organization, and I fully support them. Um, but they have so many different areas and they grew extremely large very fast. Uh, when I started doing my Facebook Lives, I think we had 80,000 followers on, on TFRM. And within a year, it grew to about 350,000 pretty quick. And, you know, if you read a bunch of like Noel Tichy and, and um, you know, some of the leadership people, they'll tell you that sometimes the, even worse than slow growth is fast growth because it's hard to develop a culture. And uh, so I finally decided that if I'm gonna focus specifically on legislation, I needed to have a very narrow brand uh, you know, when dealing with these legislators. So I figured why I just start my own group, still, you know, still partner obviously with TFRM and, and so many other great groups out there. But yeah, my main focus is, is twofold, raising awareness for statewide legislation and then getting changes to Title IV-D with the goal of educating and enabling people around the country for them to be the change. Now, I don't ever want AFESP's name to be attached to a bill. There shouldn't be any credit or recognition. I want to educate people so they can be the ones that are making the change. One of the interesting things to me, Mark, as a, as a young father, is that it strikes me that, that fatherhood and fathers are, are very, very important, right? Nevertheless, when you start looking at statistics of 50% of, of marriages ending in divorce, about 85% of uh, custody battles ending in the father seeing their kid four or five days a month. In, in my experience, most people agree that dads are important. But why do you think we're running into this situation where dads are getting so little time with their children? Why do you think, what do you think is impacting that? I think, I think twofold. One is, is the incentive program with Title IV-D at the federal level. There's just too much money flowing to states um, with it, like it started out as a great program with a great intent, but just like any federal program, 
they have mission creep and states start figuring out ways to, to creatively chase the dollars instead of truly focusing on the mission that the program was started for. And then the other you know, thing is the bar association, not, not the bar association, I, I hate to just slam on groups, but there's many attorneys who take advantage of the fact that an attorney, you know, their job is to work for their client, not for the child, it's for the client. And so if somebody goes into an attorney nowadays, and even if they tell them, I have so many of my followers that call me every day telling me, you know, Mark, I didn't hate my ex as much as I did until the day I met with my attorney. And my attorney told me that, hey, in our state, you're not going to get 50-50. One of you is going to lose and one of you is going to win. So unless you want to lose, you better start digging up dirt and they create that adversarial relationship to rack up billable hours. And it's just, it's just so much easier then to, to pit one against the other. And society still has this belief that women are the better nurturers, which, which they may be the better nurturers, but that doesn't say that the man's role isn't as important in a child's life. But if they're going to pick a winner or a loser, society still has this image that of the one who raises the children the most and spends the most time with children, they still believe that's the woman. But as you and I know, society's paying a price because those kids are craving. Yeah, anybody who's ever watched those military reunion videos where a kid goes tearing out across a basketball court when he sees his dad coming home from Iraq and jumps in his arms, yeah, that's just being ground in our nature. You know, even kids who have parents that, you know, say the parent is a felon or the, you know, the parents in, in prison, doesn't matter. In that kid's eyes, that's still their dad. And they, they love them and they crave that. And so we need to try and get the legislators across the country to understand that that child needs a relationship with both those parents. Well, it strikes me that that is by far the optimal resolution is both parents co-parenting, communicating so that they give their child the best chance of success. One of the things that really struck me in my interview with Dr. Warren Farrell several months ago was the, the actual numbers behind it and the numbers of, of the statistics on what happens to kids when they don't have access to their dad because they start searching for other role models, which might not be as positive. So yeah, Warren is that it's more one of so... the best advocates we have for raising awareness. I just, I love him to pieces. We've been to a lot of cities around the country together lately. And I, yeah, I just think he is just phenomenal to help us out for helping to raise awareness. He's, he's very pragmatic. I think his book is great. And it's just, it's, it's just strikes. I think it's really important that we have leaders like yourself, Mark, like Dr. Farrell, that are, are going after solving this problem, the problem of not having dads involved in the parenting process in a, in a more pragmatic, more educated, more level-headed way. One of the challenges that I've seen for fathers is they get their heart ripped out at age five, when their kid is five years old because they can't see him anymore. And then they just, they just don't know how to handle it. I don't know how I would handle it. That's frankly why I'm, I'm so passionate about this topic. Yeah, I think that's it is most people, and, and I went through it to a degree. I, I you know, don't know if you've heard much about my story, and, and I try to not get into too much of it just because, you know, regardless of the things that my son's mother has done, like I said, that's still his mom. And I don't want him to Google someday and find, oh my gosh, look at dad just trashing mom all over the internet. So this really isn't about her, it's about the system. But six weeks after my son was born, I went 204 days without seeing my son and was led to believe there was a chance I would never see him again because we had not been married and I had no rights to him. And uh, 
you know, when the, you know, one of the biggest important things in your life is your child. <laughs> you know, even though I'd only had six weeks with them. I mean, I did all these dreams of, you know, from the time I was in college or so of, of having a child and being able to, to be the coach of the baseball team and being there at high school graduation and dropping them off at school and sitting on your couch at, you know, one o'clock in the morning crying for 204 days, wondering, am I ever going to get a chance to, to be a father? Yeah. And you do, you get emotional. And it, there's a tendency for a lot of people to go through a, an anger stage and it's, it's understandable. Uh, the challenge is the people we're trying to communicate with don't understand that anger until you've been in those shoes. You can't, I don't, I would not have been able to relate to everything I went through if I hadn't gone through it. You know, no matter how compassionate of a person you are, you can't relate to having your child ripped out of your life. You know, people, especially, you know, cause in, my mind, it really was a kidnapping. And, and I don't use that term much because if you mention that, people think, well, it wasn't a kidnapping. He was with his mom. But they don't realize, from my perspective, I didn't know where my son was. I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. I didn't know if I'd ever have a relationship. You know, I didn't know if he was going to be taken out of the country and I'd never see him again. That, that is a kidnapping. But you so can't how, use it. Oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just curious. How much of this it's not a kidnapping he was with mom is a social construct, a construct of, do you think it's a, a construct that happens naturally in nature? Like I was on vacation a few weeks ago and I saw two manatees, right? One was a little baby manatee and one was the parent manatee. And I originally thought to myself, oh, it's, it's mama and baby, right? But then I was thinking like, well, how do I know it's mama, right? Because I think that happens a lot in nature, right? Or how much of that do you think is a social construct of, Man wakes up, goes to work, goes and fights the wars. Mom stays at home with the kids and, and makes the bed and cleans the house. Do you think that there's, do you think that those you know, I, think, played I think there's two things going on. One is the way I was raised. I'm about as old as Moses. And I grew up in the era of, you know, the Brady Bunch and uh, Beaver Cleaver and things like that, where, you know, the, the dad sort of ruled the house, if you will, and was the disciplinarian. But there was a great relationship with the father. You know, each, you know, the mother had her role, the father had their role, not that one was better than the other, but, but they did a great job of co-parenting. Yes. Moving into the 90s, as Warren Farrell talks about, you turn on any TV show anywhere in America nowadays, you're not going to find a father being looked at in a respectful manner on TV. They're always the buffoon, they're always the idiot, they're always the butt of every joke. And so you have people just have this image of either dad's supposed to be the provider or if dad's at home raising the kids, he's a loser, he's an idiot. And, and like you said, there is a, a bunch of, and that's why we need people like you. You know, my specialty is, you know, specifically legislation. And that's one thing I think we need everybody in the community to understand. We are not in competition with each other. You know, when I first started in this, in this community, if you will, four or five years ago, everybody was like in competition. There was, you know, if you were a podcaster, oh my, don't you dare do anything on our page. You know, and, and they didn't understand. No, 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 no. A podcaster fills the role that need, that I can't fill. I'm good at talking to legislators, but we need people like you to help raise that awareness. We need people like a Warren Farrell that has the credentials to get on the big shows, the Today Show and, and NBC and stuff like that. And so we each, you know, have our own role to try and, and uh, you know, get the image out. But, but like I said, you know, people like you are doing a great job helping to raise awareness that, hey, dads are just as important. In, in raising that child. Well, it's definitely been a disturbing, a disturbing track going from 
like you said, the Brady Bunch, the Al Bundy type of dad style. And, and I think it sends a really bad message to fathers, which is one of the reasons I started the Act of Dad program was to, to empower dads to realize like, you don't have to be the buffoon on the couch. You can be involved. You, and that's another thing that I've been a little bit concerned with when I, when I look at how much preparation dads put into parenting. I find that there's lots of pages, lots of resources, lots of books for mothers, not so much for dads. Do you think that that's hurting us, that dads are just not educating themselves enough or that they're not involved enough in the process until it's too late? Do you think that plays into it? Yeah, I think that's definitely it, is all the education is focused on mothers. And, and it's just, it's, it's so ironic because they, everybody talks about equality, 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 but right. you know they, they expect the man to man up, if you will, and pay for the finances, but they won't allow that same man to have the parenting time with the child. Mm. And, and that's why, as, as we know all the statistics, as kids grow up and they're confused because they love that parent. But I, you know, I look at my own son, Levi has made the comment on many occasions that mom is his real parent because he knows that if she wants to vary the schedule, she can do it. And it's just, you have to choose your battles. I can't, first off, I don't have the money to keep taking her back to court. And she knows that. And she knows I just have to suck it up if she wants to change the schedule. But if I ever ask to change the schedule, I have to basically beg. And, and, and Levi knows that. He sees that. And in his mind, I have to wonder, what does he think of when he thinks about what he want to be a, a dad someday? You know, every show the dad is an idiot, he sees me begging for time, trying to get more time with him, not getting the time. He sees me having to bounce around and flounder and beg to get what little time I have. And, and I have to wonder, does he want to be a dad when he grows up? Or is he going to think it, it's just not worth it? I, I don't know if I want to go through that. Mm. Yeah, it, again, it comes down to the message that we're sending to, to the children, to the fathers, to, to parents in general. Is just It just seems really really negative and i definitely want to see dads getting more involved more educated on the process so let's shift a little bit here mark over to your area of expertise because i've seen you speaking with governors senators congressmen a lot of people that can actually make real change so i'm interested we, we, we talk i want to talk a little bit about title 4d but i'm wondering it, to me it, it strikes me that there's not a ton of resources to empower dads what type of resources would you like to see put into law that can help dads play a more active role in the parenting structure? Well, the, the, at the federal level, we need to get away from that funding mechanism that's rewarding states for that split time. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the state level, we need what we call 50-50 rebuttable presumption laws that basically says from a due process standpoint, until any facts are known, the child should have equal access to both their parents. Now, it's, you know, it's not every once in a while the opposition tries to make it sound like, well, you're forcing 50-50 on everyone. No, that couldn't be farther from the truth. We're saying you start on equal footing. The judge still has discretion to, to look at other factors to determine whether parents fit willing or able. But right now, we're pretty much rubber stamping every case with a winner and a loser with an every other weekend visitation schedule. And from a due process standpoint, you can't go into a courtroom forcing one parent to prove, you know, to disprove a negative. They both should be assumed that they're equal parents. Right. Innocent so, yeah, that's going to help out. And, and for most legislators, unfortunately, most people have this image that legislators are working against us. They're not working against us. They're just uneducated. They don't know. And, and we have to put ourselves in their shoes. Ten years ago, if somebody would have told me about this situation, 
I would not have related. I didn't think there was anything wrong with every other weekend. Right. Until it was my child missing out on those memories. Right. And so a couple of things we need to remember is when we're talking to legislators, they're not the enemy. And like you said, we've got a, a handshake. We've got to build relationships and think of ourselves as educating legislators, not arguing with them, not threatening them. That so many people, that's what they want to do. They want to go to a legislator because they watched a movie one time where somebody, you know, demanded their rights with the music in the background and they think they're going to be, you know, the next person like that. And they don't understand that was a movie that that doesn't happen in real life. In real life, you threaten the legislator, you just created an enemy. It's, it's just like anybody else. You know, if two people come up to you on the street and you're hungry and two of them are trying to sell you hamburgers, one is very nice to you saying, hey, you know, what type of hamburger would you like? What, you want me to put ketchup on it? You want mustard? What can I do? And the other one is in your face saying, my hamburger is better. You better take mine. I'm the type of person, you know, I'm going to avoid that person from now on. I'm not walking down that street. I'm going over to this guy. Yeah. And legislators are the same way. When somebody calls up demanding their rights or threatening to kick them out of office, those phone calls aren't going to be returned. But if instead yeah. you go in educating and give them the, the benefit of the doubt, they just don't understand, those are legislators that appreciate, you know, you working with them. And so we are making a lot of progress across the country. It's, a, it's like a, you know, playing pool. One shot lines you up for the next. Most legislators don't want to be the first one to, to latch on to an issue but they don't want to be the last. So the key is to, to get a little churning action going where you get some kind of activity level of interest. You know, even in a totally dead state, you can create this. You find one legislator that has any interest at all and you leverage that with your next conversation. Hey, I just met with, you know, Representative Smith over there and, and he's getting pretty receptive. You have to be careful of your verbiage. You can't say he's going to sponsor a bill or right. something like that. It's not true. But, you know, he's starting to get pretty receptive to this issue. Now they're thinking, okay, I'm not going to be the first one. They've already talked to somebody else. I don't want to be the last. Okay, educate me. But if you can start doing that, it gets to where, like in Missouri right now, shared parenting is, is talked about pretty commonly in Jefferson City. And, you know, they all know the topic. It's not like it's not out there anymore. I just had uh, dinner with the governor, I guess it was about two weeks ago. And we had, there was the, the governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state. I mean, the whole leadership on, on that side of the aisle was there. And, you know, every person I came across at that dinner, you know, hey, how's your bill coming? You guys going to be filing the bill this year? I mean, they know, okay, it's coming this year and it's probably going to be passed this year. So we need to start creating that. But that's the other key too, is one state heart starts having success, we can leverage that in other areas. And there's a lot of problems to, to solve, right? There's a lot of problems on the docket that we need to be addressing. One of the things that that is very compelling to me about this issue though, is the direct correlation between gun violence and fatherlessness. And to me, I think that's, that's a real trigger point, no pun intended, that everyone has to latch onto. Like the statistics are pretty compelling. It's like something like 95% plus of mass shootings are done by a kid that didn't have a dad, right? Exactly. Do you think that's a point that's starting to put this on politicians' radars? Because up until now, yes, fact, I'm not hearing a lot of politicians yeah. talking about fatherhood. I was looking for a book that I have in my library over here, and now that I've got you on, I can't find it. But I've got the uh, book by a friend of mine, Dana Lash. Oh, here it is. But uh, Dana Lash, who's a, a pretty outspoken person on Second Amendment rights. Is this backwards for you guys? Nope, looks good. Okay. But uh, if, you, if only people who are dyslexic were able to read it. But uh, 
But uh, Dana has been a great advocate. Anytime there's a mass shooting, she's on just about all the national shows. And uh, she actually used to live about five miles from me here in St. Louis. And we reconnected in D.C. a couple of weeks ago. So she's actually going to be testifying in Texas this year and possibly in Missouri. Talk about exactly what you said about drawing that connection to mass shootings and fatherlessness. And ironically, she grew up in our situation and, and mm. just craving time with her dad. So she understands our issue and a high, high probability she'll be at our third annual shared parenting convention in St. Louis this year. Awesome. And you've been, so you've been traveling a lot recently, right? You've traveled to, I think you said 38 different cities, 24 state capitals, plus DC several times. How long is that sustainable, Mark? Like you are a true active dad in all sense of the word. How, how, is, how long do you think that's sustainable for? Well, my, my goal is to set a template up because I, I, I really don't want to do this all my life. I mean, I'll be active all my life. There's no doubt about this. Till the day I die, every once in a while people ask me, they'll, they'll say, you know, what's your, what's your exit strategy? That once these bills pass, what are you going to do? And, and I'll just tell you, until I die, my hope is that you catch me dying on a beach somewhere, I'm going to be talking to somebody about parental alienation or something. Because even when we get the bills passed, like you said, there's so many other issues that need to be addressed with parental alienation and, and co-parenting issues. So I'll be doing it. I won't be able to do it at the level I'm at, and I don't think I want to. My goal is to create some leaders. I, I, I love John Maxwell. He and I have met on several occasions, but I love his philosophy of developing leaders to lead other leaders. So in the early stages, I'm out in the forefront a lot just because I've got the connections. And it's, it's sort of, you know, the, the first person, you can't cram 20 people through the, the door at the same time. You need to get a bunch of people to understand, okay, let's unite around one person, push them through the door. Now they can open it wider for the second and the third. And it gets a little easier as each person gets through the door to get more and more through. So my goal is to spend about another year and a half getting some doors open and developing a team of about 25 leaders that are coming behind me that they won't need me anymore. I can do a lot of coaching behind the scenes over the phone or yeah, webcast with leaders so that it's not the Mark Ludwig show. Like I said, I, it should never be about a person. It should never be about an organization. Now, early on, you have to, from a branding standpoint, you know, when I'm meeting with legislators, it helps if they've heard my name. So, you know, a lot of people, I know some people think, oh my gosh, he's on Facebook all the time. Is he just in love with himself? <laughs> and, and I understand their concerns, but I, I'm really not. I mean, I, I can see a mirror. I look like a dork. I, <laughs> I am a dork, but you, to a degree, you have to get your name out there when you're meeting with legislators because they have to feel confident when they're meeting with someone that they understand that brand. The, legislators are very fearful of meeting with an unknown person because they don't know, is that person going to have a hidden camera somewhere or are they going to be a, a KKK member that, you know, the next election, there's going to be a picture of them meeting with this person that's mailed out to all their constituents saying, look who they're associating with. So you have to be very careful with or, or have their comments taken out of context too. That's remarkably common, right? Exactly. And uh, so, so they want to make sure that when they're meeting with someone, they know ahead of time who they're going to get. If, if, you know, if you've been vetted properly, when you meet with a legislator, you can really roll up your sleeves and really get down to business. But I'll just tell you at the federal level, your first meeting with a legislator, they won't even listen at all to what you're saying. They're listening to how you're saying it they're judging you, then they're going to go back and do research on you. It's not till the second meeting that you're ever really going to get your issue discussed in a meaningful way. But if you can brand yourself, if they've heard the name before, 
if when they're when there's you know interns usually what they'll do they help their interns google somebody and if they can see a huge branding of that person now they feel comfortable now you have an, an effective first meeting so for this another you know year 18 months i will be branding myself but then the goal is to start open the door so more people can come behind sort of sort of what Bella Schlafly did you know for 50 years you know she became known on her issue but it's amazing how many doors she opened for all the people who came behind her that now are putting, you know, she's dead. And yet, you know, there's probably 2,000 people pushing her issue now that have connections with legislators because she opened the door. So, like I said, my goal is, is over the next 18 months to start training about 25 people across the country to do what I do. And I'll just be the behind the scenes guy coaching them. That's fantastic. That's and that's just a really good way to I think not only empowering others but also getting your change pushed through. Mark, I'm I'm curious. Obviously, you're starting all of this and 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 trying to create this change because you were impacted directly by not being able to have access to your child, your your son, on a regular basis. Do you feel like this movement and fighting for dads is going to send your son? What kind of message do you think that it's going to send to your son when he's old enough? to understand because i think that's one of the things i worry about with all these back and forth between mom and dads that the kid grows up and he's like oh dad hates mom mom hates dad this you know how do you think that the way you're handling yourself now on social media is going to impact the way that he views you in 10 15 years that that's probably a question i ask myself every morning when i wake up it's a dynamite question because you know i'm very cognizant of the fact that once it's on the internet it's on there forever Yes. And like I said, whether I, you know, agree or disagree and, and no matter how mad I am at things that his mother may have done in the past, in his eyes, that's still his mom. And if I'm robbing him of the opportunity to love his mom, I'm hurting my own son just as much as she is for the things that she did. And so it's hard, but you have to get to the point where with Levi, I'm always open to discussing if he asks me. But what I make, make sure I do too is don't pressure him into mom's a bad person because she did this. We're talking about a system. That's what I, why I try to not get into many details at all. As, as you can imagine, there's a lot of details that went on. Oh, sure. People are used to of different techniques that have happened. But I try to never discuss specifics of those. I talk more about the fact that there's a system in place that has allowed this to happen. Um, to a degree, sometimes I have to discuss things like the 204 days to get legislators to understand, look, this, especially in Missouri, because most of the legislators in Jeff City at least knew my name before the situation happened, and a lot of them knew me very well. So it helps for them to be able to understand, wait a minute, that's Mark. That's the guy that we knew. That happened to him. If it could happen to him, what could happen to anybody? Right. But uh, I think you're, you're right. Is in, you know, I'm by no means an expert on raising a child. You know, nobody is. But I try to do that, try to conduct myself in a manner that if Levi ever sees any of these videos, he'll say, you know what, for, for all the stuff that dad went through, he did a fairly decent job of not attacking mom publicly. And then I, I think, you know, I've got the journal that I've written to him every night since uh, he was born. So it's now, I think I'm on 34 books now uh, that I've written where uh, every night before I go to bed and then I put the, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures, but um, yeah, I've got book after book after book of these, and oh, uh, I write to him before he goes to bed, and I put a picture of what we did during the day. So he literally has it every single day of his life. He's got a journal, and what I've tried to do, yeah, you know, I, I started that during the 204 days because I thought just in case 
there's a time when he really doesn't know who I am. Maybe, maybe things happened and, and he really was permanently alienated from me. I didn't want him to wonder someday, I wonder if dad missed me. I wonder if dad was thinking of me. So what I did is every night before I went to bed, I never put his mom down, but I talked about from my perspective how I missed him. And uh, it's, it's still hard to talk about, so I apologize. I, <laughs> I that's, cry that's really cool. That's really, that's not something I've seen before, but that daily journal is not something for you to reflect on the future, but something for him to reflect on the future. That is, I think that's a really powerful tool for, for any dads out there. That's, that's really great, Mark. I, I, I really, really recommend that. it because number one, it helps you get it out because otherwise you yes. bob up, you know, or you just do an organ recital with all your friends. You know, the first year I, I got two of my friends, bless her heart, Nancy Palazzola and jo, Joe Vaughn had to hear organ recital after organ recital of me crying on their shoulder and telling them that, you know, 11 o'clock at night to talk for an hour about she did this and she did this and she did this. <laughs> And I don't know if they just like set the phone down and did laundry and came back. But uh, I, I did find the journaling helped me in a way that, now you have to be careful. Like I said, if, if my son's going to read it, I never wanted him to read it and read I was putting his mom down. So instead I just put, you know, I had passed this kid, the kids at the school bus this morning. And it was so hard to do that. I literally cried in the car the rest of the way to work because I kept thinking, am I ever going to see you at the bus stop? Will I ever be? So I... You know, things like that, I, I told him what I was feeling and how, so that way he would never question my love. And then I, I think, you know, I had some medical challenges and we didn't know how things were going to go. So I, I turned it into life lessons for him to where I periodically write down, just in case I'm not around, uh, things I want him to know. Uh, I've got a, uh, and that's the book that I'm writing, uh, has a whole chapter of, of, each chapter is 18 different life lessons that came literally out of that journal. Uh, different things like, uh, you know, watch how people treat wait waiters and waitresses because right. it's a good judgment of the true character of that person. And so I put little life lessons in there for him throughout those. Uh, that, but I think it's a great idea for any dad to just start doing, to, to, to you feel like you're communicating with your child, even though they're not there. That's a really cool, and even if they are there, I think it's, it's a positive thing. I, 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 I create a lot of content for social media. So for me, that's kind of the legacy of the journal is kind of like more visual. But I really like, I really like that idea, Mark. That's really cool. Uh, before I let you go, I want to go through a few quick rapid fire questions, Mark, because <laughs> I got to know a little. Thinker, so I don't know how we're going to do here. <laughs> I got a little bit to know. Mark, what's your favorite story to tell your son or read to your son? Favorite story? Uh, I love telling him about my dad. Okay. And just, uh, this is, like I said, I get so emotional, but yeah, I love telling him about my dad just because I do. I just, my dad was my hero. And uh, I want him to know that legacy of our family. And, and hopefully someday he'll look up to me the way I look up to my dad. But, but I, did, I just want him to know how great my dad was for me. That's awesome. Fantastic. Uh, what about vacation? Where's your favorite place to vacation, Mark? You can go anywhere. Um, either Florida or Washington, D.C., believe it or not. I, unfortunately, I don't get a lot of sightseeing in D.C. So I, every time I go there, I spend, you know, 18 hours a day on the hill. So... Mm -hmm. One of these days, I got to take a whole week to just do sightseeing up there. Right. Well, it's easy for you to, it's hard to mix business and pleasure. I live down here in South Florida, so you can visit anytime. I will also personally be in DC for the Dad 2.0 Summit in February. I got a chance to, to interview Doug French and talk about that. So it's going to be a good- Oh, excellent. Yeah, I'll be in DC that week too. Cool. Yeah. Maybe we'll link up. Maybe we'll do some running or something. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Um, pineapple on pizza, Mark, yay or nay? Definite Yes. All right. <laughs> this is a, that's a very passionate, I got some very passionate answers on that one. And then uh, 
what what type of music do you listen to when you're trying to get in the zone, trying to get fired up? You're meeting some big, big person. What are you listening to? Unfortunately, I don't listen to much music anymore, which is ironic because I used to work on the Hands Across America project with Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie and a bunch of those guys. Oh, wow. And uh, But believe it or not, with all of my connections in the music, I don't listen. I'm always listening to either professional development tapes or I'm at meetings. Sure. <laughs> I don't get to listen to the radio much anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm mainly on podcasts now, too. I like to listen, of course, to my podcast and Joe Rogan and some of the other guys, but um, podcasting is a big one. Cool. So, Mark. Where can we find you? Where can all the awesome active ads out there? Where can they find you and support what you're doing? Uh, well, thanks for asking. And also, I do want to let people know that I really do appreciate what you're doing. So yeah, I encourage your followers to make sure that they're sharing your posts too to help you. raise awareness. Because just watching it is one thing, but we need them sharing it to get right. that awareness out to people who may not know that you're out there. And for me, the same way, especially if people are interested in the legislative aspects. Uh, I've got a website, the AFESP.com. We've got the Facebook page, which is spelled out, Americans Frequent Shared Parenting. We are getting more content. Our website, to be honest, is very weak at the current time, and that's my fault. We do have some technical IT people that we, we had some conference calls this week. They're going to be putting a lot more material up. And then I, I do have a Twitter account now. Uh, it's at STL Mark Ludwig. And then we have one for the organization, which is at AFESP 5050 for 5050. So I'd say those are the, the best ways of connecting. And then, as I said, Monday night, every Monday at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. Uh, it's going on the fourth year now that on one channel or another, I've been doing every Monday night at 7. So if people can watch that, it's a good way to find out what's going on legislatively. Well, I really appreciate your time, Mark, and sharing a little bit about what we can do as fathers and what you're doing as a father to help empower more dads. I just think it's, it's really commendable, Mark. So a lot of respect for you, brother. Well, thanks so much for having me on once again. And, and sincerely, thanks so much for everything you do, Mark. I appreciate it. You too. You too as well, Mark. We will talk very soon and make it count, brother. All right.